And Lord, as we look at the scriptures this morning, help us, as Jesus says, to have hearing ears, seeing eyes. In his name we pray, Lord. Amen. We're in Revelation 2. If you want to start or open there, uh, that's where we'll spend our time. Before we look at the passage, the American Cancer Society says that every year one in four deaths in the United States, 25% of all deaths, are related to some form of cancer. So 25% of the people who die every year Part of that process of dying or death is significantly impacted by cancer. And, you know, if you can find these cancer cells early, these rogue cells that aren't doing what they're supposed to, if you can find them early, you can normally treat them today through one method or another, and you can live cancer-free or you can certainly extend your life. But the secret is you've got to find it early so that you can apply appropriate treatment. Early, early, uh, early what? Thank you. Early intervention. Early discovery and treatment means life. And in each one of these letters to the churches, it's interesting. Jesus has this way of shining the spotlight in, just the way you'd go to the doc today and get an MRI or get a mammogram or an X-ray or a PSA, I think it is, test. Stan, you and I are old enough to be getting those. Uh, But anyway, we've got all these ways to check for early signs of cancer in us. And if you detect it, you treat and you're okay. And Jesus, when he writes these letters to the churches, it's as if he takes this MRI or the CT scan and he shows us what we can't see otherwise. Because again, early detection, early treatment means that we're spared a lot and we get to keep life. And that's what he's doing this morning. We're going to look at the letter to Perga, Pergamum. I'll probably call it Perga this morning, short, shorter name for it. But this church looks on the outside like a healthy, vibrant place. But like someone with cancer, the process has already begun, and so Jesus is warning them. He's giving them early detection about something that's going to cut their life short if it's not treated. Kind of the boring stuff to get started. You remember we started with Ephesus on the Turkey, the coast of modern-day Turkey, almost straight east of the island John's writing from. And then we went north to another port city, Smyrna, we looked at last time. And now we're going north again to Perga or Pergamum. This is not a port city. Its importance dated before this letter was written. It had been the capital of the Antigonid dynasty. And when one of these leaders, one of these kings died, the Romans decided when he said, I'm leaving the Roman uh, country, my palace furnishings, they figured that was cause enough to figure he really meant the whole kingdom. So Rome took his kingdom, and Perga was an ancient capital city. So it was important politically. It was a big place. If you remember, each time we've looked at one of these churches, we've said that not only did Jesus address a specific church in a specific time, but also there's strong reason to believe that he was also giving us a heads up about church history in general. We said Ephesus, the first church he addressed, sure looked like the early apostolic church. And Smyrna corresponded to the period that followed that, where there was lots of persecution. We looked at that last time. And Perga would be roughly the time from around 300 A.D., around the time of Constantine, up into the Dark Ages or so. And you'll see why as we look through this in a little bit. But it's a period of church history in which persecution becomes less and less of an issue, and interaction with the pagan world around the church becomes more the issue. 
vitality in the church becomes less threatened related to martyrdom and persecution than it does to mingling or becoming watered down with the culture around them. So that's the church we're looking at this morning. Revelation 2.12 is where we're starting. Jesus says to the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. You remember in each letter, Jesus introduces himself in some way that's specific for that group, something they need to hear. When he talks to this church, he says, I'm the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I've got a sharp two-edged sword. Typically in Scripture, the sword is normally associated with God's word. So when Jesus introduces this group, he's kind of like the surgeon. We talked medically earlier. This is kind of like a surgeon saying, I have a sharp scalpel. And this thing is so sharp that when I come in and use it, I'm able to discern and divide truth from error, appearance from reality. So Jesus is kind of saying, I've got this sharp sword, the one who's speaking to you, I'm able to take this sword and I'm able to divide things and show them as they really are. I can slice it open and show you the cancer inside as well as the healthy tissue. So I'm the one whose word exposes things, lays them bare the way they really are. Ephesians 6 says the sword of the spirit is God's word. Hebrews 4.12 says the same thing. God's word is this incisive knife. It has the power to show things the way they really are. You know, this is one of the great reasons why you and I need to spend time regularly in the Scripture. This is an aside, by the way. You know, our hearts are so perverse and so twisted and so black that we can't even figure them out. You know, in the Old Testament, the Scripture says our hearts are so deceitful, we, as the owners, so to speak, of our heart, we can't even figure out our own evil intentions at times. But God says, my word is so sharp and it's so incisive that if you'll spend time in it, it will reveal things as they really are. So even this morning, as I'm reading the scripture in my quiet time, I'm just feeling confronted by something that's like something out of the blue. I feel like God's confronting me about something in my life. And I'm going along thinking I'm doing pretty good. Life's pretty good. I think I'm right. I'm doing right. And you know, I read the scripture and it strikes me, hmm, Maybe I'm murmuring. Maybe I'm complaining like the Jews did in the Exodus. That was my thing this morning. But anyway, it strikes me because that's what God's word does. It does things we can't do for ourselves. It exposes them. It slices us open. It's sharp and exposes things the way they really are. This is one of the reasons why, you know, it's like cleaning your house. If you don't clean your house for a day, maybe you don't notice Don't clean it for a couple days, things start piling up a little bit. Don't clean it for a week, you know, things are stinking, it's dirty. You got to keep up on it, a little bit every day. You know, if you stay out of God's word long enough, a little bit, and maybe you don't notice any difference, but give it enough time and let the repercussions build on one another. It makes a big, big difference. So Jesus addresses this group and he says, I'm the one whose word is so sharp and incisive, it will reveal things as they really are. In this case, it's going to reveal cancer, as we'll see. So he's the one with a sharp two-edged sword. He's the one who knows things as they really are. Verse 13, he says, I know where you live or where you dwell. It's where Satan's throne is. This is kind of odd. He says, but you hold fast my name. You didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. 
who was killed among you where Satan dwells. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it strikes you clearly two times in this verse, you live where Satan dwells, where his throne is. What does that mean? That may just mean that really geographically, for whatever reason, Satan chooses to operate or chose at this time to operate geographically out of the city of Perga. I mean, that's an option. That would be the clearest meaning of the text. Uh, I suspect that is kind of what he's saying. Let me throw some things additionally with that. Pergamum was unique in a few ways as a city. First, because related to emperor worship, Perga was the first city in the world and in the Roman Empire with a temple to Caesar. Caesar Augustus in the first century before Jesus came on the scene was the first place in the world to erect a temple to a Caesar as God. I kind of find this interesting because in the books of Daniel and Thessalonians and this book, Revelation, we know that in the future, <clears throat> excuse me, a Roman leader will claim to be God on earth. And here in this city, you've got, this is the first city that erects a temple to the man Caesar and calls him God and bows in worship to him. This is in the same Roman Empire that I assume this may prefigure the guy who will rise out of the Roman Empire and claim to be God in the flesh. This started, at least related to the Caesars, in Perga. Another thing unique about Pergamum as a city was that this was uniquely a place where the god Asclepius was worshipped. And he was the god of healing. So people from the Roman world would come to this city and they would bathe in the waters of this city hoping to be healed. And you know the symbol for the God of healing is a serpent. So, and you know, in Exodus, it's interesting, one of the things, one of the ways God identifies himself to Israel is he says, I am the God who heals you. So here Perga is a unique center of worship for a God who claims, a false God who claims the ability to heal, represented by the symbol of a serpent, which is, as you know, a key picture of Satan himself, seen as a serpent, called a serpent in the same book of Revelation. And then lastly, even by the standards of the day, this city, Perga, was unique in its commitment to idolatry. Uh, per capita, you know, Topeka's the crime capital of the nation. You guys know that violent crime. Per capita, per capita, Perga was the idol center of the Roman Empire. There were temples and idols all over this city. It was unique in that sense, even in the day of idolatry in which this letter was written, in which these times took place. And, you know, Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 10. On one hand, he says to the Christians, you know, a statue is just a statue. It's a thing. In Isaiah, I think it's 44, God mocks idols as blocks of wood or stone. You know, it's just a thing. It's an inanimate object. It's not a big deal. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20, while the statue is nothing... There are demons behind the statues. So that here in this city that was uniquely given over to pagan temples with idols, we kind of infer that there were lots of demons there who were behind the idol worship, who were behind the false religions. So that for any or all of these reasons, Jesus says the place you guys live is where Satan uniquely dwells or reigns or has his throne. So this was a tough place to live. It was a place given to idolatry, full of temptation for the early church. This sounds a little bit like the United States to me, Topeka, Kansas. A place full of temptation. 
Jesus does commend them. Look at what he says. This is a tough place to live, and I don't think we should underestimate the value of his commending them. He says, you guys did not deny my faith, my name, my person, during these periods of persecution. And he names one guy we know nothing more about, Antipas, was martyred during this time. And he says, in this context of persecution, and we've talked about this before, this was no small thing for someone to remain true to Christ facing the kinds of persecution they did. It was horrendous, terrible. This is no small thing. This is a real commendation. And Jesus is glad to give it. He's always glad to praise what is praiseworthy. So like Ephesus and Smyrna, he can praise them that they didn't give in when times got tough, that they continued to call his name and to represent him to others during very tough times. But he doesn't stop with commendation uh, because he knows we need, as they did, to need, uh, need to hear more than just that. Look at verse 14. He says, I have a few things against you. So on the upside, you guys have been faithful, and that's great, and I praise you for it. On the downside, I've got a few things against you. One of the reasons this tickles me is he says there's a few things, but how many does he mention? Just one. You know, if the Lord were to address you or I at any point in our life, how many things would he come up with to say this is deficient, this is deficient? It'd be a long list, wouldn't it? I mean, frankly, if he's saying to them a few, they're doing pretty good. But even here where he says, I've got a few things against you, not too many, just a few, he doesn't name but one. I find this kind and merciful on his part. You know, the truth is, most of us, even as I was thought I was doing great this morning, when we think we're doing well, you know, generally there's still a lot of sand under our foundation or there's a lot in our life that's not what it should be. And if the Lord pointed it all out to us at a moment, we'd probably just despair. So he doesn't. He prioritizes, and then he works through his priority list. So to a group, he says, you've got a few things that need to be addressed. He actually mentions one, just one. And it's because this is the cancer issue. If this issue isn't addressed, the others don't matter. This is the one that needs to be addressed short term. So a few things against you, only mention one. You have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality, so you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now just a brief history lesson out of Numbers 22 to 25. We need to know who Balaam is and what this means. Briefly, when Israel came out of Egypt with the Exodus, they do their 40 years, almost all of it in the wilderness, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. As they come up, they're going to go on the east side of the Dead Sea, up the east side of the Jordan, and across at Jericho. Okay? They've got to go through the land of Moab to do that. There's two or three million people here. The king of Moab, Balak, he knows what happened to the Egyptians. And he knows what's happened to the other armies that have faced Israel in the wilderness. And now they're going to come through his kingdom. He's worried. So he has a plan. He's going to go to his buddy, his neighbor, Balaam. And Balaam is a Gentile prophet. God really speaks through. He's a bit of an anomaly, and he's not praised in Scripture, but God really speaks through him. 
And King Balak says, Balaam, if you'll come and you'll curse this nation that's going to come up through my country, if you'll curse them for me, because I know you speak for God, I'll pay you. I'll give you wealth. I'll make life good for you. Initially, God won't let Balaam go. But he relents, as it were, and Balaam goes to curse Israel. But there's a problem. Each time he stands on this prominent point and looks out over the nation of Israel and opens his mouth, a blessing comes out instead of a curse. And really some important prophecies related to the coming Messiah come out of the mouth of Balaam from this passage. He cannot curse Israel. And Balaam told Balak, this is the deal. I can only speak the words God gives me to speak. He cannot curse Israel. Balaam is a wicked prophet, however. So although he can't curse Israel personally, he tells Balak, I've got a plan for you. You want to get rid of Israel. You can't beat them, so join them. Absolutely. This is the teaching of Balaam. You can't beat Israel, and I can't curse them, so this is my plan. You join yourselves to them, and this is what you do. This was ingenious, and it worked. You send out your attractive young women, and they go to Israel, and they invite the young men just to come and have a good time and a little clean fun at the statue of Baal. And, of course, it works. So the guys leave Israel... They go to the temples of Baal, they bow down to this foreign god, and they commit immorality at the temple fun time. Remember, immorality, this was a given. When you worshipped idols, sexual immorality was part of the deal. They're hand in hand. This is part of the deal. So that's the teaching of Balaam. When you can't beat them, join them. Bring them with you. Get them to join you in your pagan practice. Get them to join you in immorality. You don't have to beat them. Just join them. This is what cancer does. Or you get an infection, it just enters in and then it grows. This is the teaching of Balaam. When you can't beat them, join them. And this is the way you can do it. Just invite them to your party times. Get them to come and join you a little bit and you'll get them. And it worked against Israel. And you can read that. And it starts a play. God judges the nation. It brings death and severe death to the nation because of this. Verse 15 says, So you also have some in the same way who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus equates the teaching of the Nicolaitans with Balaam's teaching. You can't beat them, join them, get them to come, join you. So, Nicolaitanism must mean this was the temptation for the early church. Remember, once persecution's over, Constantine makes Christianity the state religion. So now, it's not going to be persecuted to death. Now the temptation is to join with the pagan religions around them. And Perga is full of it. It's everywhere. It's on every corner. There's a temptation in front of them constantly. Now, it's important to remember here, in fact, it's key, that like cancer in your body, you don't see this. They're not practicing paganism or idolatry now, and they are not practicing immorality. What does he say they're doing? They're holding the teaching. They're holding the teaching. Now, if you remember back to the church at Ephesus, 
Jesus says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He commends Ephesus for hating this mixing of Christianity, of true faith, with idolatry. Jesus says, I hate it, you hate it, I commend you. But remember he told Ephesus, but you got a problem because your love has grown cold. You hate the right thing, but you're not passionate about the right thing, me. Smyrna we skip over, but here at Perga, he says, by the way, you've taken one more step. Now you're entertaining the thought of spiritual immorality. You're entertaining the thought. Do you know what happens in the next church, the next letter we're going to read? Thyatira, where are they? They're doing it. There's a progression here, and you can see the progression in church history. A little growing cold, a little entertaining the wrong thought, leads to action or deeds. This is, the, this is always the same thing. Do you remember when Eve's in the garden and Satan tempts her and says, well, just look at it. You know, and she looks at it and she turns the thought over in her mind. There's a process. On the outside, Perga looks fine. But Jesus opens the side up with the scalpel, the sharp two-edged sword, and he says there's actually cancer inside. It's already growing. And it's your willingness to entertain the notion of spiritual apostasy or immorality, the teaching of Balaam. A little bit of this, a little bit of that. It won't make any difference. It's harmless. I'm not really doing it, you see. I'm just thinking about it. You remember, again, back to the Exodus, God gives these commands from Sinai, right? The Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. Don't have other gods before me. Don't bow down to idols. I'm just using a couple here. And don't commit adultery, right? You get to the Sermon on the Mount, though, and what does Jesus say? He says, if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, what? You've sinned. He says, if you hate your brother in your heart, you, the murder, the sin is already there, even if you don't carry out the deed. In other words, the sin always comes from the heart. Proverbs 4 says, watch over or look over your heart with all diligence because from it flow the issues of life. We can't be content to look at the outside and say, I'm, I'm not sinning on the outside. I'm lusting on the inside. Jesus says in the Gospels, it's out of the heart that proceeds murder. All the uncleanness, all the vile things, they're inside. So the place and the time to repent is not after we've committed the deed. It's not after we've bowed down to the idol or after we've committed immorality. They haven't done it yet. But as we'll see, Jesus is going to say, this is the time to repent. Not later. Now. While you're entertaining the thought, while you're thinking about it, this is the time to stop. You know, oftentimes, you and I find ourselves in situations where kind of our eyes open, we shake our head, we look around, and we say, how in the world did I get this far out of line? You know what? It happened one step at a time. One step at a time. And it started with our thoughts. I'm learning more and more, and I'm just becoming more and more impressed. When I'm 10 miles off the road, I've been off the road a long time. And I say, Lord, how did I get here? He doesn't, he doesn't point to the last step I took or the step before that. You know which one he goes back to? The first. 
The first step is where we've got to say no to the temptation. So if life is a path and righteousness is the narrow straight way, I've got to stay on the path. The place to repent is the temptation to the first step off. I don't know if you remember the old cartoon, Kathy? Kathy? Anyway, sorry, dear. But Kathy, maybe you've seen this. This is a well-known one. She said, I won't think about the chocolate that I don't want to eat. Okay, I'll think about it, but I won't go to the store. Okay, I'll go to the store, but I'll stay out of the candy aisle. Okay, I'll go to the candy aisle, and I'll look at it. Okay, I'll look at it, but I won't eat it. Okay, you know, and she's pigging out. You know, the wrappers are flying. You know, where did she lose the battle? It was at the first step. And that's where these guys are at. They're entertaining the thought. They can say, truthfully, we haven't committed immorality. We haven't gone to those other temples. We haven't lain down with those folks we're not supposed to be sleeping with. They hadn't yet. But they're entertaining the thought. They're turning the thought over in their mind and they're making provision for it by doing that. That's the thing. And this is the place Jesus says they've got to arrest it. In fact, look at verse 16. He says, therefore, repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your thoughts. On the front end, repent. Don't wait till you've committed immorality. Don't wait until you've forsaken me. He says to them right now at the thought stage when the sin is still in their mind, he says, repent now. Change your outlook, change your thoughts now. Do it now, don't wait. He says, if not or or else, I am coming to you quickly and I'll make war against them, those who hold the teaching, who entertain the possibility, I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He gets back to this thing, the sword of my mouth. I assume the thought here is that he's saying, if you guys don't turn from the option of immorality now, from entertaining this as an option, I'm going to come in and what you've entertained in the dark, I'm going to make known in the light. And I'm going to apply my sword to your thoughts. I'm going to open up the secret cavities of your soul and the immorality that lurks within is going to be exposed to all. Do you remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day? They looked clean on the outside. But Jesus says, but inside you're just full of dead men's bones and death. And you know, frankly... Many times, many of us as Christians look okay on the outside and inside we're just we're full of death, just like the world around us. And Jesus calls us at the thought stage of the process to repent, change our mind, throw the option away. Don't entertain it, don't go there. Or else I'll make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Verse 17, he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, just like the sower with the seed in the Gospels, many people hear the words. Not everyone responds. And Jesus says to him who has an ear, if you will, listen to what I'm saying. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Now, I hope with me you feel convicted 
by the passage about the temptation at the level of our mind and our thoughts. There's no doubt that every one of us, as we sit down with God's word, as his spirit applies the truth of his word, there's no doubt that every one of us, in one way or another, James says we all sin in many ways, there's no doubt that God's word will always convict us of some wrong motive, of some secret sin, of the willingness to entertain something that we shouldn't be. It's a given. In fact, First John, same author, different letter, says if you say you have no sin, you're lying. It's always there. It's there. So I hope we all feel convicted. We should. Conviction's always necessary. And that we hear Jesus say, repent, turn from your thinking or from your actions in those areas that are out of line with my word. But following the conviction and the desire to repent, this verse uh, I love. He says, to those who overcome, and we've talked about this before, but it probably means no more than to just those who will remain faithful, just those who will continue to call on my name, just those who hold the faith. This is what he says. I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give you a stone, a white stone with a new name on it. And this sounds a little obscure. So we'll develop this just a little bit. Manna. Uh, probably everyone knows. You know, Israel's in the wilderness. They need food. So what's God do? He rains manna. Every night, manna comes down every morning. It's like dew on the ground. They go out, they collect it. So manna was God's provision for his people, Israel, in the wilderness. Manna was his provision. God says in Exodus, I think it's 16, he tells Moses and Aaron, you guys, you go collect some of this manna. You put it in a jar. And then I want you to store that in the secret, hidden place where I dwell at the tabernacle or the tent of testimony. There's going to be a jar of manna in my tent where I live. There's going to be secret, hidden manna in the temple eventually, but in the tabernacle while they're in the wilderness. So it's as if God is saying, Jesus is saying to the church and to you and I today, When you forsake the option of sin, when you repent and restore your relationship with me, this I promise you, you'll be like a priest at the tabernacle who comes into the secret place where I dwell and I'll richly provide for all your needs and I'll reveal myself to you in a way that can only take place face-to-face, secretly, intimately. In fact, in John 6, Jesus alludes to the manna in the wilderness and he says your fathers ate manna but I am the true bread the true manna from heaven in fact in John 10 and in the upper room discourse Jesus says I'll reveal myself I'll manifest myself to those who know me so here this seems to be an appeal Jesus says if you'll forsake the option of unfaithfulness I'll welcome you into the secret place where you'll be fully provided for and you'll get to know me in a way that you can't when you're outside with all the other options around you. And also he says, I'll give you a white stone with a name on it which no one knows but you. Uh, Back to Exodus. The priest, when the high priest went into God's presence, he carried symbols of the tribes of Israel. He carried a stone on each shoulder. The names of the tribes were inscribed written on the stone. Six tribes named one shoulder, six on the other. He also had on his chest 
12 stones on a breastplate, one stone for each of the 12 tribes, so that when the priest went into God, he was symbolically carrying the tribes with him into God's presence. So Jesus takes this thought of the stone representing that tribe. In this case, it's going to represent the person or probably Jesus. Most commentators think that this isn't a, the name inscribed is not a name for you or for me. It's a name for Jesus. White probably here is meant to symbolize purity. You remember in other passages in the New Testament, it says the saints are clothed with clean white linen. And our righteousness ultimately is Jesus' righteousness, which is absolute and white. It also says in Revelation later on, the righteous acts of the saints are this clean linen. So the white color of the stone probably represents purity. You've said no to the option of spiritual unfaithfulness and immorality. I'm giving you a white stone representing your purity. But I'm also putting a name on it. And in fact, he says, which no one knows but the one who receives it. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I think of eternity and heaven, I know that I am one person of hundreds of millions or billions. And although I know in my mind God is omniscient and omnipotent, I still have a hard time understanding how I and he are going to have any face-to-face or intimate relationship when I'm just one of, let's just say, billions. I'm going to be lost in the crowd, Lord. This stone, this this is what I get from this. He's going to put a name for himself on the stone, and he's going to give it to me, and he's going to give it to you. And it's a name that only you know. And it'll be a name only I know. So when I'm wanting time with the Lord, you know what? I'll be able to call a name that no one else can call him by. You'll be able to call him by a name no one else can call him by. A pet name, as it were. He will know you and you'll know him in a way that will be unique no matter how many people are in heaven. It'll be unique. Winston Churchill was this political powerhouse of a guy and a bulldog of a personality. People who knew him well, though, knew that he had a pet name. I think it was Cat for his wife. And he would write the most boyish, flowery, overflowing notes to his wife that you could imagine and call her by her pet name. That's kind of the thought here. Jesus, the Savior of the world, the God who spoke the universe into existence, says, among all those who fellowship with me through eternity, you'll have a name that you're the only one who can call me by. I find this encouraging. It helps me understand that in some way, I'm one of billions, but I'm unique. God won't lose me, and I won't lose him, because I'll be able to call him by a name that no one else knows. No one else knows. I always go long on Sunday morning. I always think, Lord, I'm going to keep it short this week, and it never happens. I'm almost done, though. Uh, Real intimacy, let me say by closing, whether spiritual with the Lord or in a marriage, can only come, can only come when we give ourselves exclusively to one other. Increasing our God's or our sexual partners does not increase intimacy, it decreases it. You remember in times past, uh, I don't think they say this anymore, but at a wedding, 
the bride agreed to forsake all others and keep herself solely or wholly to the groom. In the case of intimacy, whether it's marriage or spiritual, the saying that less is more is true. Less is more. The exclusivity gives intimacy that cannot be enjoyed otherwise. I'm going to close with a story. This is kind of an odd illustration, I grant you, before I start, but I think something applies anyway. Uh, One of my great heroes, American heroes, was a guy of really unquestioned talents and abilities. He was born and he grew up with absolutely no advantage. In fact, he was shunned and suffered many setbacks, physical health problems, couldn't get into school, turned away from one, one school and then another, really faced some challenges. But he kept at it. He was a Christian. He was raised to know God and he simply kept plodding. He eventually got into school. When he got into school, his teachers recognized this guy is incredibly talented. First, his first passion was to be an artist. And he was a great painter. And some of his work was displayed at one of the world fairs. He was that good. One of his teachers, though, who knew him well, said, as good as you are in art, really, I think you need to pursue another area. And so he did. He left what was initially his first love to pursue something else that he thought God had called him to and an area that he thought he could be helpful to other people in. So he went in and he started at another university. He started a whole new program. The program was agriculture. And the man was George Washington Carver. One of the things I love about him, this guy was so talented. He he was a genius. Uh, George Washington Carver, listen to something he said. He said, I took a handful of peanuts... And I looked at them and I said, great creator, why did you make the peanut? Why? Now just think, you're a brilliant guy. You can do anything you want. And what do you do? You study the peanut. George Washington Carver is known today as the father of the peanut. In other words, he said no to all kinds of things, art first, but after that, all kinds of things he could have pursued to invest himself almost entirely to develop the peanut. And this guy, he is just so cool. I'm looking forward to getting to know him in heaven. He was, in 1921, he was at a congressional hearing, and he's just been, frankly, mocked because of the color of his skin by the people who want to hear from him. Ridiculously insulting. He took no offense. He was a humble and committed Christian. They were going to give him 10 minutes. Well, they just just let him speak as long as he wanted because they were fascinated by what he had to say. A congressman asked Carver where he had learned all these things. He said from an old book, the Bible. The senator was amazed that the Bible told about peanuts. Carver replied, it didn't, but it tells about the God who made the peanut. I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. In other words, George with all his talent and all his genius, could have done any one of a number of things, and he felt like God called on him to invest in life in the ignoble legume, this little peanut in the ground. But you know, we remember George Washington Carver today because his exclusive study of one little plant. In fact, most people don't know, George Washington Carver's study of the peanut revolutionized. In fact, it saved farming in the southern United States in the last century. 
the cotton crops as a cash crop were diminishing. In fact, the southern farmers had depleted the nutrition in the soil. The family farms were going broke. And one of the reasons George Washington Carver studied the peanut, he wanted to know how to help the farmers in the southern United States. So he studied one plant primarily. He actually studied a couple others, but he's known for the peanut. Over 300 uses. He saved the family farm in the southern United States. He gave seminars all over the southern United States. I mean, the good he did is remarkable, and he's remembered today because he gave himself to the pursuit of one little plant. You know, this isn't, this isn't spiritual morality or immorality. This is just George doing one thing. But the point is, for him to excel the profit and the good of his investigation, his life came because he said no to a hundred or a thousand other options and said yes to just one. And the stakes are so much higher for you and I spiritually. God is saying to you and I that the, even the option of spiritual immorality, even the entertaining the notion of forsaking him for some other temporary pleasure. It's cancer, and it'll kill you. In fact, he says, guys, I'll commend you where I can, but if you don't stop this thing at this point, I will make war with you. You know, Ephesus' love had grown cold. He said, I'll remove you from being a church. Perga, they haven't sinned yet outwardly. They're just entertaining the option. He says, guys, you need to stop here. Change your mind. Change your thinking. If not, I'll make war with you with the truth. I'll expose you for what you really are, spiritually immoral. You've left me on the inside. You're showing up on the outside, but your heart's gone. As we close, think through some things with me. Where is our heart? In the quiet place where only you and God can meet, Where are your affections? Where are your emotions? What are you and I thinking about when no one else sees or hears? Are we entertaining things that we shouldn't be? If we're married, are we entertaining thoughts about another spouse or forsaking our spouse, trading in? Just spiritually, are we watching things? Are we entertaining the thoughts of things that are going to lead us away from the Lord who saved us? Are we making provision through our thoughts, through not refusing the right things, or through not saying yes to the right things? Are we making provision for future immorality, future betrayal? If we're not right now, if you and I aren't experiencing personal, vital, satisfying relationship with Christ, hidden manna, a white stone, a unique name, is it because, like Perga, is it because there's cancer within? Because God's saying we need to get rid of something so we can have that intimacy. Let's just take a minute before the Lord and ask Him to search and to reveal any hurtful way. Or we just take a minute before you just to ask you to let your word and your spirit have their way with us, Lord.
Father, we acknowledge you as God, the one who as creator has claimed all that we are, have, think, do. Jesus, we acknowledge you as Savior, the one who died for our sins, who has a claim of redemption on us, on all our affections. Lord, you've said in your word that we all sin. Father, we know that every day we need your word to come in and do its work and expose the hurtful things in us. Lord, help us to give up, to say no, to refuse the thoughts, to entertain the notions and the options that lead to death. Help us to acknowledge that every good thing in life we can enjoy comes straight from your hand, that it's in your presence that there's fullness of joy. And that, Lord, for us to say no to sin and its temptation is always and only in our best interest as well as honoring to you. Lord, help us to put away the idols that we carry under our cloaks or in the places others can't see. Father, help us to repent so that we can enjoy with you in your presence and by your Spirit hidden manna, a stone with a name that you give us and us alone, Lord. We want to know you intimately, Lord. We want to honor you. We want to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.